Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see you guys. Oh, we're awake this morning. That's great. Uh, my name is Jeff Skipper, one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer. Uh, if you've been with us online or in person, you know last week we actually both ended a series and began a new series on the same Sunday. We ended a series in 1 John, and we began a series going through the fruit of the Spirit, and we started with love, which makes sense, uh, because in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says, love binds all things together. So we're going to read it in a moment. If you look at that list in Galatians of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, all of the character traits that follow love are simply outworkings of love, because love binds all things together. And so we're going to move uh, through this this morning. Uh, we do a family devotion every morning, very short, at breakfast before the kids leave. And a lot of times uh, I, I lead that and I'll do something from CBR that day, our community Bible reading, uh, or I'll do whatever just seems appropriate, uh, wherever the Holy Spirit lead, leads me. And it's funny that about 90% of the time the Holy Spirit leads me to a verse on self-control for my family. Uh, you know, I have three little boys, maybe that's why. Um, the truth is, I need it just as much as they do. We talk about that a lot in our house, and we need to talk about it today because we're living in a time of fear, and it is giving way to extreme selfishness, and we are losing control. Uh, whether it's over uh, politics or COVID or race issues, um, school situations with parents and teachers, I've heard stories of you know blow-ups. Uh, you can't really keep up with the headlines of just out-of-control Things. I mean, it, it spoke to me the other day that I went through Chick-fil-A. There is a sign in the Chick-fil-A drive through that says, if you cannot behave yourself, we will ask you to leave the premises. And I was like, we can't even act right at Chick-fil-A, of, of all places. This is getting out of control. Um, which is funny, because on one hand, we're more uh, focused on and mindful about like self-discipline and self-improvement more than ever. We have apps for time management. We, we count our macros in our diet. We're getting it all together, and yet somehow we're spiraling out of control as much as ever before. Of course, as we talked about last week, the antidote to living a life of selfishness, a lack of self-control, is love. First John, right? It's found in first being loved by God, as Vicky prayed a moment ago, and letting that love transform you to love the same way. And Paul says one way you do that one way you love that way is living a life of self-control. And so that order is vital. I want to catch that early on. The fruit of the Spirit isn't something we dig down and will ourselves to do to be good Christians or to get God to like us, right? This is, as Vicki said also, uh, it's naturally the overflow of knowing the love of God in Christ for you. Okay, this just flows out. And some say self-control is last in the list because it's the last one to come, which may be true. Uh, but fruit in the Greek is actually singular. This is not fruits of the Spirit. It's not like a la carte, like my son thinks dinner is and he picks from everybody's plate every night. You can't just pick the ones you want. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, all of these are interconnected. They come at once, okay? And in a time where everybody's losing it and acting out and hunkering down to protect themselves and their own, often at the expense of others, we have an opportunity as Christians to be self-controlled, loving, sacrificial people, a loving presence that witnesses to the greater hope that we have in Jesus. And so uh, because this is somewhat topical, I'm pulling in multiple scriptures about self-control this morning. If you'll look on that insert, they should be on the screen as well, uh, if you want to read along with me. Also notice we're going to include some passages from James every week as we go through uh, the fruit of the Spirit. So I'm going to read these through, and you can see the references there on the screen and in your worship folder. 
For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, As we look at our outline first, let's define self-control. And when you define something, it's often helpful to define what it's not first to clarify. And so first, out of the gate, uh, Christian self-control is not stoicism, right? This is this Greek idea that we have destructive desires, which they're kind of on the right track there. Uh, And the way you handle life is to just by a sheer act of the will, put on a straight face, deny yourself and just kind of miserably grind it out seems to be implied with the idea of stoicism. That's not Christian self-control. Neither is Christian self-control just strict asceticism. It's not simply a strategy of denying ourselves over and over and over again. I think maybe sometimes we think self-control is just God's way of taking our fun away. That's not Christian self-control either. Rather, Biblical self-control is living in a way that honors the God-designed boundaries of our world and the limits of our humanity. I want to say that again. Biblical self-control is living in a way that honors the God-designed boundaries of our world and the limits of our humanity. Uh, The Bible says the world is like a piece of wood with a grain in it, and God put a grain to the universe. There's like guardrails, and if by self-control you go with the grain and you stay within the boundaries that God has designed, typically there's more of a smoothness to life. That's kind of what Proverbs is about. Yes, there's still suffering. We live in a fallen world. But generally, if you go with the grain that God has woven into the universe, there's more of a smoothness. When you don't go with the grain, when you go against it, and you dishonor the design, don't be surprised when you get splinters, right? For example, uh, sex is like fire. Uh, If it's used outside of the God-designed boundary of marriage, it'll burn you up. It'll burn other people up. If you use it within that window, it'll keep you warm. Money's the same way. If you use it to fulfill your heart outside of the way God designed it, it's going to let you down. If you use it to provide and bless other people, it'll be a blessing. If you use God's gifts in the way he designed them, the ways they're meant to be used, you experience the joy of those gifts, and you love yourself well, you love others well. That's one way to define self-control, but I want to break it down more, a little more technically. There's two Greek words in the New Testament that are translated as self-control. I want to look at, and we we actually looked at both of those. First is in Galatians. Look at that fruit of the spirit list again. For self-control, the Greek word is in kratia. So in is a preposition, in. Kratia means might, power, or even to arrest. So Paul's saying one trait Okay, this is what he's saying. One trait of what it looks like to live a spirit-filled, godly life is to be in power over yourself. Self-lordship, self-mastery over your appetites, your body, your desires. 
I really like the arrest imagery. It's the ability to like grab your desires the moment they want to selfishly indulge themselves and say, hey, put your hands behind your back. Calm down. You're crazy. Come with me. Let's start over. Grab your desires by the collar, not the other way around. Your desires don't grab you by the collar and yank you around, which is what sin is. We'll talk about that later. It's self-restraint over your word and thought life. That's one definition of uh, self-control, of what it's translated as. But also there's another one, and, and it's a different word in 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit of self-control. The same word in Titus 2, the same Greek word, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, training us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Different word. Uh, this Greek word is sophronismos, and it means, and I really like this word, it means moderation, uh, living sensibly. Or maybe my favorite definition of this word is thoughtful awareness. God gave us a spirit, listen, read it this way. God gave us a spirit of moderation and thoughtful awareness. That's beautiful. And how rare is that trait? <laughs> it's being thoughtfully aware of what we do, the choices we make, what we take in, how much we take in, and the consequences that will have on us and the people around us. One uh, person defined it as this, self-control is the ability to choose what's most important over what's most urgent. The ability to choose what's most important over what's most urgent. Monday night, I got dinner ready while the family was gone. I plated everything. I got it on the table, drinks, all ready to go. I texted my wife. I said, we were starving. It was late. I said, all you have to do is walk in and, and wash your hands and sit at the table and we'll eat. Okay? Because the, the food is warm. Gave them a heads up, everything. Okay, great. Somehow they took over 10 minutes to get to the table. And I'm sitting at the table like the, I don't know if you've seen the little Pablo Escobar gif where he's just sitting alone at the table all by himself. And like, I'm starving and my hot lasagna is right in front of me and everything in me just wants to crush my lasagna. So bad. That was the urgent thing. They can deal with the consequences, right? The important thing was wait on my family and, uh, and eat together as a family, which I did. I would just like to say that. Uh, but if you've noticed, usually what is most urgent is us. My, that is what's most urgent, me. My desires, my appetite, my wants, at the expense of others. But generally, what's most important is what God calls me to and how it affects other people. So what, what feels most urgent is checking my phone right when I wake up and 3,000 times a day. That feels urgent. What's most important is that I start my day with scripture and later spend time with my family instead of mindlessly scrolling or overworking. That's what's most important. What feels most urgent can be sexual impulses, to click, to watch, to act. What's most important is to protect my heart, to protect my family and my marriage. What feels most urgent is to vent our anger and grumble, our harsh opinions with no thoughtful awareness of anybody else. That feels most urgent. What's most important, the Bible says, is to use thoughtful, gracious words that build others up and doesn't tear them down. And James paints a picture of this Christian behavior, which relates to self-control. Look at chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. How rare is that in our social media age where there's only noise? How countercultural is that way of life? Godly, self-controlled, thoughtful awareness of my words and my actions and the effect they'll have on other people, which James in chapter 3 calls wisdom from above. 
That's wisdom from above. Listen, being quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger is a Holy Spirit-filled life. And James says, you want wisdom from above, not earthly, demonic wisdom is actually what he calls it, but wisdom from above is peaceable, gentle, and listen to this, open to reason. Which reminds me of that sophronismo self-control word of living sensibly. Open to reason. This is, James says, this is what it looks like to be a sane person. Because <laughs> sin makes you irrational and crazy. You want to live with sanity? Listen well. Be open to reason. Be peaceful and gentle. Do you want to regain your humanity and walk in step with the Holy Spirit? Live a quiet, self-controlled life. And notice how others focus that way of life is. Do you see a thread? Right? This is another way that worldly self-control is different from biblical self-control. Because worldly self-control, which we need that as well, but it, it's, it's merely a self-improvement project. Mostly. I exercise my will to serve myself, to better myself. Okay, there's a place for that. But Christian self-control is ultimately for the sake of others, which I tell my boys all the time. I say, guys, you live with self-control in this house not mainly for yourself, but for us. You living with self-control is an act of love because when you don't, it hurts all of us. But when each of us live with self-control and we consider one another over ourselves, we love one another. We contribute to the peace of our home. We experience more joy. The dominoes of the fruit of the spirit list begin to fall because again, they're all connected. So this is Christian self-control. How are you doing? How are you doing? How does that urgent versus important framework play out in your life on a daily basis. Okay, what is it? Secondly, our problem with it. If we're honest, I think we all are out of control. <laughs> we all have a self-control problem. I don't know that, I mean, words like moderation, self-mastery, and thoughtful awareness probably doesn't accurately describe our word and thought life, our bodily appetites, our habits across the board. Instead, like weeds in my yard, our, our desires are unrestrained. They're insatiable, they know no limits, which the Bible actually calls flesh. You see that word flesh in the Bible. And the Bible actually says our main problem isn't necesarily our desires for bad things, but our over-desires, our out-of-control desires for good things. Look in Galatians 5.26, in that list where it says desires, the Greek word is epithumia, epi, over-thumia desires. Over-desires, out-of-control desires for inherently good things. That's the real issue for food and drink, for money, for entertainment, for sex, for relationships. I use the gifts the wrong way. I binge on the less important things and it numbs me to the most important things. Why? Why do we live this way? And I think we have to step back and look at the entire narrative of the Bible, the big story, and go back to the beginning, which says our first parents refused to operate within the boundaries of God's design. If you remember that, in Genesis 3, and they were kicked out of the garden where they had life with God. It was good. But right when they were kicked out of the garden, they lost their spirit of contentment and security, and they entered the world as orphans. It's so sad. That's our story. That's their story, and that's all of their children's story. Psychologists and counselors talk about the importance of a child getting attunement from a parent. How in tune were your parents with your emotions and your feelings when you were young. When you cried, did they console you? When you smiled, did they smile back? Did they mirror that? When you seemed sad, did they lean in and say, hey, what, what's wrong, are you okay? And for those who didn't get that, they say that can manifest itself 
uh, as an adult as deep distrust or deep insecurity because that foundation of being known and loved and safe and cared for wasn't laid. And the Bible says we all have a cosmic case of that. Not because God wasn't attuned to us, but because we bailed on the process. And so we've been wandering outside of his presence, insecure, anxious, on edge, because we're not confident that we have a father in heaven who's watching us and caring for us and providing for us. And so we enter the world with a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1 says. A spirit that there are no guarantees and there are no promises in this world. And so what are we left with? If that's the base spirit, the posture that I enter the world from, I'm left with this. If I don't look out for me and I don't aggressively act on my desires and hoard and fulfill and look out for me above anybody else, then no one will. And neuroscientists, they call this our reptilian brain, and it's living in survival mode, living totally reactionary, instinctive, impulsive, straight from the gut, which can serve you well sometimes if you're in a bind. You need that, but it's not a place you want to live from all the time. (laughs) But that's what an orphan does, because I don't know where my next meal is going to come from, (laughs) because I don't have a father who's looking out for me. And the Bible says this is why we do what we do. The root cause of our living this way with a lack of self-control is unbelief. So if we want it, we buy it or eat it. We want to see it, we click it. We think it, we say it. Because again, if we don't have a father in heaven who at all, or if he's not for us and good, then this is all we're left with. And yet, it never satisfies. We know that. The writing's on the wall, and it leaves us absolutely broken. I read an article earlier this week on the history of the Celtic people, which I hope you didn't fall asleep when I just said that. Um, uh, And it was like going through their history, it was the most random article, and it was like the top 10 things in their history, and one of the things was like the building of a wall. And I thought, wow, what a boring history. I don't know if it's really boring, but of all 10 things, one of them is the building of a wall. Apparently when Rome conquered Britain in the first century, later the emperor Hadrian came and he built a wall in North Britain to protect the Roman settlers in the south from the Celtic people settling in the north, right? And you can still go today and see maybe like a part of this wall, but mostly it's just in ruins, which people love to do. Isn't that most of sightseeing? It's just like when we went to Israel, I took a thousand pictures of the rubble, and it was beautiful, it was great. Uh, We love that. Uh, But, you know, that would have been a tragic sight in ancient times, a broken down wall. We read Nehemiah recently in community Bible reading. And at the beginning of the book, Nehemiah's in exile, and he has a, some good friends who come back from Jerusalem. They just got back. And he asks his buddies, he says, hey, what's, what's Jerusalem like these days? And they say, well, the wall's broken down. And the next sentence says he sat down and he wept because that was that big of a deal. That was worst case scenario, a wall being broken down. The city would be vulnerable. It meant one of two things. The, the city was already conquered or it was only a matter of time. And Proverbs says that's a picture of us without self-control. If you look at that verse, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls, which that would have stopped an ancient reader in their tracks. Without self-control, anything gets in and everything gets out. We don't have the ability to filter the content we take in. We don't have moderation with our bodies. We can't manage our time or our yeses or our noes, our commitments. We can't restrain our words and our thoughts. We don't have practices of self-discipline. Our priorities are out of whack, 
And Proverbs says when we live that way, it's only a matter of time until we're in ruins and so will the people around us be. So where are you living from a place of impulsiveness? Immediate gratification with no thought to the urgent versus the important. Think of your work life, media habits, your goals, your practices. Do you have any walls? And how might it be affecting you? Those lack of walls, right? Is it really satisfying? Is your lack of self-control and your lack of boundaries directly or indirectly hurting the other people in your life? Are you neglecting those who are closest to you? And if you look deeper, why do you think you're living this way? Is there a spiritual reason for your lack of self-control? How does that orphan narrative settle with you if you slow down and think about the way you're living and the decisions you make? The great lie in our hearts is this. This is the whisper from the garden. Put yourself in the center, which our orphan spirit says we have to because nobody else is looking out for us, right? Gratify your desires. My kingdom come, not thy kingdom come. If I live that way, then I will experience abundant life. And yet, that's the greatest lie of all. It's not working. We know it's not working. We are bloated, weary-eyed from staring at screens, overindulged, on edge. We're like Edmund in Narnia when he eats the Turkish delight, and the more we take in, the less satisfied we are, and the more hungry we get. Our unrestrained desires are just wearing us out, and it's wearing out the people around us. So what do we do? Are you tired of living that way? How can, how can we find freedom from ourselves and regain, that's what, regain my humanity, my God-designed limits and boundaries, and live in a way that loves other people? How can I learn to keep his gifts in their proper place? And we, so we see this spirit of self-control, which obviously it begins with rooting out that lie. Rooting out that lie with the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is this. When we were wandering and anxious and without hope and out of control, Titus 2 says the grace of God appeared bringing salvation. (sighs) Listen, does your heart need to hear this? God came down in the flesh, and this is what he said. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Those who are running around frantically stretched thin, trying to build your own kingdom at the mercy of your own unrestrained desires, killing yourself and others in the process, come to me and I will give you rest. The all-powerful one, listen, the one we bailed on, the one we sinned against, he shows up. Instead of lecturing us and giving us immediate judgment, he gives the most warm invitation in the history of the world that resonates with the human heart more than any words I've ever heard. That's what God is like when he shows up and we're a train wreck. Do you remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and God showed up? What did he say? He didn't show up. He he did not show up and say, what in the heck have you done? And I think some of us think that's that's what God's like. He's saying, are you serious? And yet he shows up like a tender father looking for his shame-ridden, hiding children. And he says, hey, where are you? And he says that to you this morning. He says, where are you at? Jesus came. That's the invitation he gave. And he succeeded in every place we failed. Every place we've been out of control, he was in control. He lived a life of perfect self-control and obedience to the Father and love for other peoples. When he was tempted, he refused to give in. In the garden, he had the perfect opportunity to bail on the whole process, the cross and everything, and yet he stayed. 
1 Corinthians 9, 25 says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things so that they can win the prize. And Jesus did the same. He set his face like flint towards the cross. The scripture says, for the joy set before him to bring us salvation. And don't shortchange that, right? It's to bring us salvation, not just from sin's penalty, but from its power over us now. Which means I don't have to live this way is what that means. That's part of salvation is that with the Holy Spirit's presence, we don't have to live this way. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. The good news is that if we turn in faith, God takes away that spirit of orphanhood. Second Timothy, our spirit of fear, and he gives us a spirit of adoption. The spirit of a child of power and self-control. It's like he picks us up in his arms and he spins us around singing and our hearts come to life. And as we look to Jesus, that lie gets uprooted and what slowly over time gets planted in my heart is the love of the Father that he has for me, which results in a life of that I don't have to live impulsively, insecure, greedy, gorging, self-gratifying lives, yanked around by our out-of-control desires at the expense of others. Instead of broken down walls, the scripture says the Lord becomes our strong tower. And in that safe place where I'm calmed like a child, he begins to put me back in order little by little. Putting the first things first. And the funny thing is, look at verse 24 in the Galatians passage. It says, as we crucify our desires, as I crucify the urgent, like Jesus, who didn't look out for his own interests, Philippians 2 we read earlier, but instead he looked out for ours. He lost his life so that we could gain gain ours as we do the same We prioritize the important. We actually find our life. That's the resurrection. Actually, as I lose my life and crucify the urgent for the sake of the important and love for God and love for other people, we find our lives. That's the promise of the resurrection. So now just a few brief applications that we leave with. One, a vine needs a trellis to grow or it goes out of control. A vine needs a trellis to guide it or it grows out of control. We are most free within those boundaries. We're most free on a trellis, like a vine. Do you have a game plan for spiritual practices to cultivate your relationship with God and grow in the grace of self-control? Do you have a trellis? We need practices that are conducive to spiritual flourishing. And so for starters, I just recommend the recent series we went through called Our Common Rule, which is based on the book. You can look that up. Concrete habits that cultivate life and prioritize the important over the urgent. We went over things like prayer three times a day, turning your phone off for a certain amount of time each day, scripture in the morning before I pick up my phone, community with other believers and not isolating ourselves, which is really tempting right now. Isolation is a breeding ground for losing self-control. Begin building a trellis as a concrete application for having self-control in your life. Secondly, strive to have self, self, uh, healthy self-dialogue with yourself. If you remember the psalmist in Psalm 42, he turns on himself and he says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. We have to be able to do the same. To turn on our desires and exercise self-control and remind ourselves of what is true. One, hey, you're not an orphan. Quit living in survival mode. Can you tell yourself that? Do you stop in the moment and, and, and grab yourself by the collar and say, hey, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Put others before yourself. You don't have to live this way. You have a father in heaven who longs to give you everything you need. You don't need to abuse his gifts or other people. Do you have healthy self-dialogue? 
Thirdly, I would just remind us, especially during this season of extreme division, remember your witness right now if you're a believer. It is easy to live without a filter. It's easy to live with no walls right now and just let it fly. Strive for thoughtful awareness. Wisdom from above that's open to reason, that's sensible for the glory of God and love for other people. And finally, any growth begins with confession and faith. And we have that opportunity this morning as we get invited to this table. I want to reemphasize that wherever you are, wherever you've been, God does not say to you this morning, what in the world have you done? Are we seriously still at this point? He does not shame us, but he says, where are you? Come to me, all you who are anxious, impulsive, and out of control, to those who've made a mess of their bodies and their relationships this week, to those who have vented and thought without no restraint, to those who've overworked at the expense of the more important things, to those who've mindlessly wasted so much time scrolling on your phone or staring at a screen all week, to those who are enslaved to the urgent. He does not shame you. He says, come and I will give you rest and I will put you back in order. Uh, Dane Ortland, many of us are reading this book called Gentle and Lowly, I recommend, and he says this. He said, he does not say whoever comes to me with sufficient contrition or whoever comes to me feeling bad enough for their sin or whoever comes to me with redoubled efforts. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so we respond. As we come to this meal, we say, Lord, I confess that with my lips, hands, thoughts, words, I have been all over the place. I haven't loved well. I've made idols of things. My priorities are backwards, but with you there is forgiveness and there is healing and you can make me new and wholehearted just like your son. And he meets us right in that place. And so as we take this bread and this cup this morning, we look to the risen Jesus and we sing again, satisfied. We say, you are all I need, Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Uh, I confess when I see a list like this, um, the first thing I feel is conviction, the fruit of the spirit list, uh, because I'm hardwired by the fall to want to prove myself and earn your love. And I'm immediately convicted of how far, far short I fall uh, in walking in step with your spirit. Uh, but I also know that sanctification is slow and you are a God who gives more grace. And nothing says grace like your invitation to messy sinners to your table to sit down this morning. And so we would ask that you would make us more like you, that you would give us the grace to stop this morning, even as our minds are running, and to really examine our own hearts and where we're struggling with this trait of the Holy Spirit, this character trait, and that uh, we would have the faith and the courage by your grace to begin making strides towards that in loving other people and being a, a witness to you, God. Uh, so bless us this morning in our time together, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. If you're anything like me, you're going to lose your self-control before you get home, just on the car ride home, because we just so easily slip back into that orphan spirit, that spirit of fear. This last word, this benediction, is a reminder that you don't have to live that way. Your Father sees you. He loves you. He's making us new, and we got to walk this road together as he transforms us into the image of Jesus. So uh, if your faith is in Jesus, receive this benediction, this good word as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in God's peace.